Ladies and gentlemen, this is season three of the Middling Pop Culture Podcast Peak Show. Hey Daniel, good to see you. Always nice to meet a fan. No, I'm an actor. I'm Bojack Horseman. You said I was a true friend and you would never forget me. And you said your name was Chadwick Boseman? Welcome to Peak Show, recorded live from David Boreanaz's house. I'm your host, the face of depression, Bree Rohde, and whom do I have on the line with me here today? Lucky Lucky! Hey! <laughs> yes, Loretta, you know her better as Lucky Lefty from uh, from TikTok, the app that is taking way too much of my time today. Uh, and today we're here to discuss the trajectory tropes and peaks of BoJack Horseman, I personally went back and forth on whether or not BoJack was a good show to do on this podcast. Um, As I mentioned uh, before, we've mainly discussed comedies here on Peak Show, uh, and I guess while BoJack is categorically a comedy, I don't think it's a comedy that's comparable to like The Office or Arrested Development at all because it's so highly character-driven. You don't deal with the same things that come up in a lot of our other comedy episodes like audience pandering or philanderization, and it's also... Actually, I was I was shocked when I looked at this. It's the first Netflix original I've done on the show. So it's a bit of a challenge to discuss the evolution of something where the season drops in a binge format. But I'm really glad to have uh, Loretta or Lefty here as our guest host. Like a lot of, um, like I think many people in our audience, you showed up on my TikTok for you page with these amazing analyses of BoJack Horseman, including all the characters, the relationships, the high concept episodes. And I was so like, as such a fan of your content that I just devoured all of it. So I'm really happy to have you on the show. Well, thank you so much. That's wonderful to hear. Bojack is one of my favorite shows. I could honestly talk about it for hours and hours and hours. So it's great to have an opportunity to do that again here. I'm so excited. And yeah, it's I always like talking about Bojack with other people. It's not the most like conversational show. It's not like, you know, to use the 90s nomenclature, it's not like a water cooler show because it's such a bummer, you know? Yeah, it is. But I think the thing that's really neat about it is there's so much detail, like just like crammed into every single frame that honestly you could dissect things for hours. Like even yeah. the hidden characters have a ton. Oh my gosh, it's so much fun and like uh, the the um like the animal motifs that are used in it and like I there are so many things that I learned about animals from Bojack, which I think is fun. Oh, I um, think that's wonderful. Yeah, you can tell like there's a huge animal person somewhere on that writing team because some of the references <laughs> are so niche yet so well done that it's incredible. Like, mm-hmm. it's like you know, Aquafina's whole shtick, mm-hmm. um, I think is probably one of the like cleverest animal gags in the show. Mm-hmm. I agree. <laughs> so, um, and one could also argue that the cast is huge animal people. <laughs> of course, <laughs> I, I I tell many bad jokes. You will get used to that. Um, anyway, so a um. Uh, tradition we have here on Peak Show is for you to uh, share with myself and our audience a time in your life that you would describe as peak Loretta. So tell us what moment in your life was kind of like peak you. So I have a quick question. Is peak like in terms of like an awesome moment or just <laughs> who I am as a person? It could be either, you know. I mean, for example, one of our guest hosts, Mint, I always use their uh, peak moment as like the gold standard because they described... Um, getting drunk and doing a lecture on the OC. Um, But other people have done more sincere, like, you know, the peak of my life was my wedding day. So I would say go with your gut. (laughs) I'm going to go with who I am as a person. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. So I think a moment that was pretty much peak me six months ago, um, a party with some of my closest friends in my hometown who I had not seen for two and a half years. Everything's winding down. We're, we've been partying since maybe seven, seven o'clock in the evening. It's three o'clock in the morning. And then somebody offhandedly mentions the 90s book series Animorphs. Just saying a super <laughs> casual mark. Hmm, do you remember those books with the weird covers? I wonder what they were about. And then my poor, poor friends were held hostage for another two hours while I basically whipped out a blackboard and outlined the characters, the plot, really delved into the <laughs> alien lore of Animorphs because they could not walk away from that party unaware. I you, had to activate them. It was my responsibility as a good friend. It feels like there are a lot of people who grew up in the 90s and 2000s who are now coming out of the woodwork as big Animorphs fans. And a lot of them are either like leftists or queer or like just really into like, I've even seen an, an angle of it from a disability politics angle. I will just say that K.A. Applegate has a place in heaven that we, you know, perhaps one day 15 years ago thought was reserved for J.K. Rowling. And now we're just like, you know what, you're my, you're the tween author that deserves like all my love and devotion. So. Well, of course. I love <laughs> Kay Applegate. I think she deserves way more credit than she gets because I think she wrote, like in my humble opinion, probably the most powerful anti-war children's series I've ever read. Was not afraid to depict like the full-fledged horrors of it. Really dealt with like the nitty gritty details. I mean, I never wanted to go to war after reading <laughs> after reading the ending of those books. Yeah. My, I think Animorphs was the series because I was already a big reader as a child. It was the series that got my brother reading. And so, um, which meant my parents were so desperate to get him reading that they bought him every single one. And so after he was finished a book, I would take it and read it. So it was like, because I always wanted to be like my big brother. Um, so it was fun. Uh, Andrew, if you're listening to this, I don't want to be like you anymore, but you're still awesome. Um, I don't know if my brother listens to my podcast, but I only say nice things about him on it. Um, so, um, of course, you you talk about so much more than BoJack on uh, your TikTok channel. You've talked about, actually, you've talked about a lot of shows that I've gotten into because I like watching your content. I, I'll say I wasn't ready for Tuca and Birdie because I was worried it was going to be too much of a bummer. And um, your videos really convinced me to watch Tuca and Birdie. Um, that said, I would love for you to tell us just about how you got into BoJack, you know, when you got into it and what led you kind of down that rabbit hole. Oh, wow. Okay. So I first got into BoJack. Let's see, the series came out in 2016, I want to say. Um, oh, no, it was 2014. Actually, 2014, it was one of Netflix's okay. first kind of crop of originals. Oh. So yeah. I, it came out when I was but a wee lass. I think <laughs> I was still in high school when it came out. And I remember the way that I first got into the show, I would listen to like the sad monologue compilations at like four o'clock in the morning while I was doing homework because I really loved the voice acting and like something about like Will Arnett's voice um, mm -hmm. was like very soothing to me. So I would listen to those, but I didn't actually know anything about the show. I never actually watched it until maybe two or three years later. And then I was like, oh, wow, this is amazing. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, I first watched it all the way through my freshman year of college. And at that time, only season five was out. Um, but I just fell in love with it. Like at first it was a little slow, but after the like initial confrontation that Bojack has with her, I was like, wow, we really have something special on our hands. And then I just fell in love with it. I've always loved heavily character driven shows, probably why I was such a big Animorphs stand as a kid. <laughs> and I 
love shows that are just like sort of like dripping with detail ones where like you can literally go frame by frame and pick out certain references or ones where you can spend probably hours dissecting a single episode so this was definitely the thing for me and I've always had a soft spot for like like anthropomorphic animals because I'm a big animal person myself I major in veterinary sciences I work with them day to day life so it was like the best of everything character driven character driven plot lots of niche animal references I love the character designs I love the comedy so yeah that's awesome it also makes me feel very old because um when Bojack was released I was 25 um, oh, wow. and, yeah I know it's uh I, I've made a lot of deals with many with many devils for for this complexion but uh and I was actually around the time that Bojack was released I was I had moved from consumer reporting because I used to be a Toronto City Hall reporter and moved into um, trade reporting. And my first trade reporting job was on the streaming entertainment industry. So um, I was spending a lot of time in L.A., uh, which gave me actually eventually a huge appreciation for all the Hollywood, Hollywood jokes in the series. Um, and. I got sent a lot of screeners, which was nice. Um, and Bojack was notably one of the first kind of big Netflix originals. It was one of the first like non-drama originals. So um, I had to kind of beef up on my Bojack. Um, so at the time it looked like a fairly like typical crude, like family guy clone. And um, a fun fact about like the way it was rolled out was um, with, um, with Netflix shows, it's, it's no different than a typical TV show that ro that rolls out weekly in that they'll send you like the first five or so episodes of the series. Um, except that it's weird because 12 episodes drop at once. And so all I had were five episodes. The first five episodes really make the show seem different than it is. It's, yeah, it's very episodic, very self-contained. Um, and so I was, after my, after I went for my screeners, I was like, eh, no thanks. Um, and then I decided to um, give it a second go around, I want to say when the fourth season or fifth season was released, which at that point, there was one problem. <laughs> I had just lost one of my very good friends from high school to a drug overdose. And so a certain episode really hit me like a ton of bricks. But that was where I was like, I have to keep watching. <laughs> and um, yeah, I've... I became like a watch it the day it drops viewer after that. And it was, um, yeah, like it sucks. It sucks you in how clever it is, how fun the writing is. After a while, everything feels so heavy and not just because of how sad it is, but like you said, there's so much to unpack with the characters. So um, I have rewatched the series once or twice in, it, in its entirety. And I'm like, you know, I can go another year without rewatching this again. <laughs> of course. Yeah. Um and I was actually, I was with you because when I first watched it, that was my first thought. I was like, this is a family guy clone. Mm -hmm. Because they tended, they tended to do like a lot of like family guy-esque comedy, like especially in those first five episodes, like the cutaways. The episode I always think of is um Todd's rock opera. That one mm -hmm. almost made me quit the show completely, yeah. even though I do like it in retrospect. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm so happy I stuck with it. Like my biggest challenge recommending it to other people is saying, okay, you just got to grind. You got to grind past this hump. And when you do, you mm -hmm. will think, but you just got to get past the first five. Yeah. Like the most family guy-esque thing I can think of with that episode is the way they're like, oh, character actress Margot Martindale, which I thought like, oh, this is so sweaty. And so like, you know, leaning heavy on the irony. Margot Martindale became one of my favorite side characters. Um, and 
and and it permanently changed the way I look at her as an actress too. Like what a great integration of that. So yeah, I, I, I'm really glad I stuck it out. Um, but by the time I was hooked, I'm like, this isn't a comedy. This is not a comedy at all. It's a cartoon. It's not a comedy. Of course. You know, um, you know what made me appreciate um character art actress Margot Martindale all the more? Mm-hmm. I found out that she was actually like in the Disney movie Secretariat, which is probably why they brought her on to begin I with. I had no idea. That's hilarious. <laughs> I was I was um, subjecting myself to the horror on the topic of horrible Netflix originals, uh, the show 13 Reasons Why, and which I watched through it in its entirety. I gotta say, the rest of that series makes the first season look amazing. But in the in the third season, there is a bit part played by I do not know the actor's name, but he's the grand, uh, he's the dad from Walk Hard, and the the wrong kid died. And all I could think was, oh yeah, Margot Martindale was the mother in that movie. You know what? She's had a better career. <laughs> like, God, perfect movie. But we're not here to talk about Walk Hard, although I could talk about Walk Hard forever. Um, so in terms of the history of BoJack, so I have a hard recommend on the Vulture article on the oral history of BoJack particularly because it has a lot of great illustrations of some of the original character designs in it. But here's my, my little breakdown of the history of Bojack. So it was conceived by uh, Raphael Bob Waksberg, who was largely an unknown entity in Hollywood at the time. And I always have like a lot of affection for shows that are started by people who aren't Nepo babies or, you know, strongly connected in Hollywood. Um, he was living with friend and comedian Adam Conover at the time, uh, and he based the concept of Bojack on the isolation and loneliness he felt in Hollywood um, during a time when he had a lot of unsuccessful comedy pitches. The art was based on the work of Bob Waksberg's longtime friend and occasional collaborator, Lisa Hanawaltz. Sometime after 2010, they designed the character's for his show, which was originally entitled Bojack the Depressed Talking Horse. Um, on that note, have you seen the original character sketches? I have seen the original character sketches. I love them. They're so fun to look at. The original Todd, which I know changed a lot, I feel like he looked like real Aaron Paul a little bit. He did. Like I I, I don't know if they did this, but I almost feel like they designed him with Aaron Paul in mind. Like they had a Breaking mm. Bad binge and they're like, what if Jesse <laughs> never met Heisenberg, yeah. but also met a manipulative older male father? <laughs> yeah, I, I yeah. also being, and again, this was a screeners I acquired because we don't have Hulu in Canada. Uh, being a fan of the Hulu original, uh, The Path, I just want Aaron Paul to play a guy who's like happy and standing on his own two feet for once, you know? Um, he's a wonderful actor. I would love for him to just play a guy who just has a job at the bank, um, yeah. you know? Um, yeah. Um, and on, on that note, you know, I I agree. He almost looks like he was designed after Aaron Paul. And um, we'll get to the casting in a minute, but Bojack has something in common with one of my favorite um, cartoons, King of the Hill, which is that... Um, even though like I'm not a fan of the whole celebrity voice acting thing, that's very different from what they did, which was casting actors who are not typically voice actors, but who are very much known for their voices. So like, I, I love the casting of Bojack. It's like the one, that and King of the Hill are the one area where I'll make an exception into like, voice actors have to do cartoons. Like, um, so yeah, the um, in the original pitch to network, Bob Waksberg met with Michael Eisner, who suggested Bojack be changed to a former racehorse. When this did, while this didn't materialize, this is what led to Bojack's uh, Secretariat movie storyline. The cast was signed on before it was picked up by Netflix. Uh, Will Arnett, Amy Sedaris, and Aaron Paul were the first three cast. Um, it was 
one of the first uh, significant Netflix pickups in 2013, which was back when Netflix was still picking up Steam as a producer of originals. So at the time, creators said Netflix wasn't looking at doing animation because they felt if they considered this, they would have to meet with every animation producer in Hollywood. Um, a personal connection led uh, Netflix VP of Spectacle Series Blair Fetter to get behind the project. Uh, Lisa Hanewalt reluctantly came on to design the show, working uh, with the animated produ animation production studio Shadow Machine. Uh, and the first season, which was done uh, incredibly rushed, like nine months or something, uh, only the first half dozen episodes were sent to reviewers. Again, in retrospect, this is probably a bad idea. Um, so it didn't have the best critical reviews coming into it. Nevertheless, the show was reviewed for a second season four days after its premiere. Every subsequent season was announced within two weeks of the launch of the most recent season until its conclusion in 2020. Um, Raph Bob Waxberg served as the showrunner for the run of the series. Um, I think obviously the design and the direction are a big talking point, uh, showing aspects of the show. Um, some have criticized the animation style for being sterile or ugly because uh, if people aren't familiar with this term, the characters are made using uh, digital puppet animation. So the assets like, you know, their extremities and their facial features are pre-designed. They're not, nothing is storyboarded according to uh, director Annie Walker-Farrell. Um, it's all done in flash. But there are some elements that are hand-drawn. I believe mouth movements are hand-drawn. So some have called the style a little like heartless or like because it's easy to turn around quickly. Um, and when you look at Hannah Walt's original character drawings, they were really charming and amazing. I also do think, though, that I kind of don't mind that style because I think it's elevated by some of those really ambitious and design-heavy episodes, as well as like all, all the details, like you said, the details they put in visually. I, I have to agree with you with that one. I at first I'll, I won't lie. When I first saw the animation, I was like, "Oh, this is kind of this is kind of gross looking." <laughs> I really fell in love with it the more that I watched it. I, I think like I think it definitely improves as the seasons progress. But I think like kind of like the stiffness that people criticized in the initial seasons makes a lot of sense in context of the show because mm -hmm. I mean we're looking at a show that takes place in Hollywood and the characters are literally like model puppets. Mm -hmm. So I think yeah. there's something that's kind of ironic and fitting about that. Although I will say I love Lisa Hanawalt's work, like her work on Toucan oh, Birdie. Yeah. There is so fluid and lively in comparison. Mm -hmm. But I think that also makes sense because Toucan Birdie is supposed to be like day-to-day -day lives of two ordinary women and sort of show like like the energy and like vibrance of their own lives. So I think mm -hmm. I think it's fitting, but man, I actually didn't know that detail that they were puppets. I had suspicions, mm -hmm. but I never actually researched the um, animation assets. So that's really, really neat to hear. There's one thing that I actually think is an advantage to animating like that. And that's, you know, being obviously anyone who's listened to the show for five minutes knows that I'm a huge fan of The Simpsons and that visual changes are very, very difficult to commit to. Um, that's again, why King of the Hill rocks it for just permanently changing Joseph or shaving Luann's head or something. But with the puppet aspect, they were able to do like two of the most praised things or one of the most praised things on that show is the fact that they gave Diane a permanent weight gain. And it's, that's really easy to do when you can just go in and edit the assets or cutting Diane's hair or dyeing Bojack's hair or Hollyhock losing weight every episode. It is so much easier to do that and more sustainable. So I'm not, I shit on a lot of um, modern touches with animation, but I I will say that I, I think there are some some advantages to the way they did things. And I also agree, like, I think the ugliness really works because the series is a, a lot about the ugliness of things. 
Yeah. Like it's all about like, it's sort of about like the ugly underbelly of everything, of entertainment, of of working in the entertainment industry in really any capacity, whether you're an agent or an actor or you're just existing in that sphere. Mm-hmm. And just like kind of like the under the ugly underbelly of the characters themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Every oh sorry, go ahead. <laughs> Darn it. Uh so yeah, the I was I this is where I normally conclude my history section talking about ratings and I am going to try really difficult to not descend onto one of my Netflix's The Worst Rants, which I go on seemingly every other episode. Because normally when discussing TV history, I get to talk about AMA and Reach. And um, we don't know these because Netflix doesn't share those. It is not like a typical network compelled to share those. So um, we don't know how many people watch BoJack Horseman. And for what it's worth, a view on a streamer is different than a view on typical TV because typical TV's currency is for commercials and we don't have commercials on Netflix, obviously, but we will never know. Netflix is uh, Netflix is a walled garden, so it gets to say, trust us. But um, I mean, it's safe to see that obviously it drew in enough people that Netflix continually renewed it for five seasons. And I think overall, I would say it ended when it was appropriate to end it. It didn't overstay its welcome, I don't think. I don't think so either. Mm-hmm. I did read something. I'm not sure how they collected these specific analytics, but I did read something recently that said that there was like a current demand for more BoJack Horseman that was higher than any other Netflix show. And BoJack's been over for three years at this point, yeah. which I found, I found very fascinating considering just the cultural weight that show has, that <laughs> there's still such a high demand for it, that there's still so many people constantly watching it. Um, we... Go ahead, please. I was going to say, I remember reading that BoJack Horseman, at the time that it was announced that season six would be the last season, the creators originally intended between one and two more seasons, but they had always requested that if Netflix was going to axe it for them to give them a heads up in advance so they could try and neatly tie up the storylines as well as possible. So they were very, very close to their original vision, but I still think that even with like the early critical cancellation, I think they did a phenomenal job tying up the loose ends. A little bit of rush pacing at certain points, but I still think that it's there's one element that it's not even that I think it was too rushed I was surprised at how little um conflict there was with it in the last season which I wouldn't be surprised if it had gotten a bit more conflict had the show had an extra season or two and that is Diane's relationship with Guy on one hand I feel like maybe it's nice that we for once we do not have um, a relationship with for Diane that is defined by its uh by its rockiness I mean Diane's whole thing is that she has no idea how to accept happiness. And so it is perhaps nice that we have something that is just kind of uncritically a good relationship. But I'll admit that I was surprised at how she's like, oh, they're, they're moving to Austin. Oh, they're, they're married now. That's great. Like, you know, there were almost identical critiques of Princess Carolyn's relationship with Judah. People are like, well, this kind of came out of nowhere. They that, settled the things yeah. at the union and all of a sudden they're married. Um, I will say I do think I can I can see like rewatching like seasons two and three I can see the show setting up a potential romantic art with Princess Carolyn and Judah mm-hmm. that maybe they would have elaborated more on had they had the expanded content but I think um I think it kind of works for a similar reason that Diane and Guy work both of these characters have struggled so much in terms of love they've had such contentious relationship with the, relationships with their previous partners mm-hmm. so I think there is even though it's kind of surprising I think there is something kind of soothing about watching them just have like a nice easy love for the first time yeah and I like to be contrarian and I also love Judah um being that like 
half my family, well, all, all the, all the men in my family are on the spectrum. And Judah reminds me so much of my father that I like, I have such a soft spot because like, I, I love my dad, dad, if you listen to this podcast, first of all, stop. Um, secondly, (laughs) Hey dad. Um, but, um, I I think the only reason I know there was a lot of like fan backlash about Princess Karen ending up with Judah and I'm just like why he's a nice boy um I think there wouldn't be nearly as much backlash about Princess Carolyn ending up with Judah if fans didn't like Ralph Stilton so much. Um, and for me, ever the contrarian, I'm just like, well, I don't like Ralph Stilton then. I actually think Ralph is a great character. I think he's adorable. I think his arc with Princess Carolyn is is great. I do think their relationship is a great example of how you can have two wonderful people who just it's not the right time and they are not right for each other. And like timing is kind of everything with a relationship like I you know not that this isn't even a particularly heavy thing because he's literally been a guest on on this show before but I have an ex with whom like it was just like it was the wrong time it didn't work and now we're good friends and so I don't mind that she and Ralph Stilton didn't get up get together in the end it's like I'm fine with that yeah me too I, I I'm also with you it's not like I hate Ralph as a character I think I also think he's adorable he's a little cat and she's I, he's a little mouse and she's a cat um, I think they have great chemistry. I think they have some very funny moments together. But I also think like rewatching their relationship, I do see like they have certain like just fundamental incompatibilities and it's neither one of their faults. But I think like comparing Ralph to Judah, I think Judah is so much more like complimentary to like what Princess Carolyn wants in life mm-hmm. and just what overall would work best for her as a person. Mm-hmm. Ralph, because he comes from so much wealth, I don't think he ever truly understood like the place that Princess Carolyn was coming from, why she had such a deep attachment to work. Because to him and his sister, work is work is a hobby. Mm-hmm. Work is just something they do for the fun of it, but they don't truly have to do it. They don't have any like they don't have any skin in the game. They don't have anything big they're risking. And Princess Carolyn has devoted her entire life to her career. Mm-hmm. Um and I think like I know a big portion of Princess Carolyn's arc is like your life does not have to revolve around your career. There are wonderful things outside of it. But I think in terms of her overall like dreams and ambitions, Judah is such a better fit for her mm-hmm. uh, just because he's been supportive of it from the beginning and he understands where her heart lies. Mm-hmm. I think one of the things that I saw with Princess Carolyn and you really see it manifest in the new client episode when she's um, also trying to make things work as a mother. But Princess Carolyn um, really struggles with other people's expectations of her. And one of those things I think is like a lot of people romanticize not giving a shit about your job and like not letting your career define you and stuff. And what people ignore is that Princess Carolyn has worked so hard for her career and to be recognized and be among a certain class of people that to then turn around and say like, well, you shouldn't let this define you. And it's like, she is very clearly very proud of how her career defines her. I also like that Judah being a character who is autistic coded, like that those those qualities about him, his straightforwardness, his, um, you know, lack of grant, like the lack of grandioseness to the way he speaks, that that can be romantic in a way, because a lot of people stereotype people who are on the spectrum as not having a romanticism to their lives. And he does have artistic pursuits. He does have, you know, he does see the finer things in life. He just with him, he has different communication styles. Lastly, I'm glad you mentioned Ralph's sister because the one reason I'm glad he didn't end up permanently tied to Car- Princess Carolyn, 
there's only so much Stephanie Stilton I can take. She is one of my least favorite supporting characters. Gosh, I think she was funny at first, but she's just a bit too close to home. Mm-hmm. She reminds you just of just like a certain type of person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like too much. She's too real, and Absolutely. she cannot be around me for too long. Yeah. Um, like I said, I left consumer media pretty early in my career, but that was <sighs> journalism is filled with women like that. And again, they are all like not not even necessarily nepo babies, but you know, certainly coming from I'll say the top ten percent of wealth and. Um, very much, um, they're not, uh, they're not living on the same plane as others. And so, um, I do think she was great when contrasted against Diane, because Diane is truly an example of like, you know, to generalize Diane for women is like how things were for the rest of us and how things were for us who, you know, we might not have been poor, but we did not grow up rich or we might not have been horribly ugly, but we certainly did not grow up pretty. Um, and so Stephanie's a great contrast with her, but it's a note that we that you can only hit so many times, I think. Of course. Mm-hmm. I think like I think the thing that was just slightly too real about Stephanie is like the type of woman she represents. They're not necessarily evil people. Many of them are actually very nice to your face, mm-hmm. but they just have a very hard time empathizing with people that are not from their sphere. It's like they almost can't like rationalize that people exist outside of it. Like, what do you mean you can't drop five hundred dollars at a three Michelin star restaurant for dinner? Yeah. Exactly. Um, and I think, but I do, I do think the scenes where she's contrasted against Diane are all the more effective for that reason. But there's only so many times you can see her, like, especially when she just casually like dissolves girl crush and just wipes everybody's jobs without considering how that affects other people. I was just like, oh, that's a <laughs> Yep. Working in media. So somehow like touch wood hasn't happened to me yet. But um, so I think on the topic of Diane, I think one of the best things that co- could have possibly happened to the show was moving away from any inkling that Bojack and Diane have potential romantic pairing because so much of the first season is focused on it and I love that like they drop it like a hot potato but then instead instead of just kind of pretending that never happened instead they move on to like here's why this friendship is really really toxic here's why they are very necessary for each other and also going to destroy each other like I I love that they decided we don't want this will they won't they anymore I think that was such a good angle to lean into because I feel like I feel like when it comes to like male female friendship shows love to Harry and Sally it can they really be friends and I hate that I I despise that with every fiber of my being and when I first started watching the show I was also super anxious they were going to keep up like a will they won't they storyline when I hated the idea of it from the very beginning Mm I love the way they kind of approach them because they are they are such similar characters like in the way they initially think and the way they initially like perceive the world like in sort of like their cynicism their nihilism but I really love the way the show emphasizes how like they kind of like converge and then they diverge like the exact times they start branching off and how that impacts their relationship mm-hmm. and how ultimately Diane sort of distancing herself from Bojack is like the ultimate symbol that she's improving as a person and that she's healing from a lot of her previous pain. Mm-hmm. The scene that I always think of is, um, I'm so bad with episode names, but it's the scene where she's like bawling her eyes out. It's the I'm a pit scene. Love she, that one. I love that one too. And she tells Bojack that basically he's one of the worst people she knows but he's the only thing that makes sense to her because she grew up surrounded by similarly like cruel unsupportive people so this is the only dynamic that she knows how to navigate well mm-hmm. and i think the fact that she was able to like find like a good support network 
and know what like a good healthy relationship feels like is so impactful in context of that scene mm-hmm. because at that point she was like this is all I know and this is basically all I can know and that was such a big source of her pain so yeah, yeah. I love that progression it's really funny because I had I will always say kind of on the record, oh yeah, Mr. Peanut Butter running for governor is my least favorite arc. And yet it brings me two of my favorite things in the series, which is uh, incorporating Andre Brower in who like, I mean, we've done an episode on Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Everyone knows how I feel about Andre Brower. Uh, he also has a fantastic voice. Love his voice. Um, but then, yeah, the I'm a pit scene and also the killing of Zach Braff. Like, also, got, just going to say, it's awesome how many celebrities are willing to debase themselves on the show. I love when celebrities do that. Um, it's amazing. Yeah. I also love it. Have you read about um, like Jessica Biel's like, whole interaction with the writers of BoJack Horseman? Because I think it's so, like, they just want, so she fun. like wanted them to make her meaner and worse. Yeah. Like, yeah. She said, go, she said, go harder, go for the kill. You're not like, you're not gunning for this hard enough. And also, um, Daniel Radcliffe, I believe he said that like, the jokes Bojack Horseman has made about his career are like the funniest Harry Potter related jokes he's ever heard. Daniel Radcliffe just seems like an absolutely cool guy. I've uh, gone on the record numerous times saying for, for reasons, uh, for turf reasons, the show will never do Harry Potter. Also for the fact that I was not a big Harry Potter consumer. Um, I was, I think I might've even been too big of a nerdy virgin for Harry Potter as, as a youngin. But um, Daniel Radcliffe might be one of the coolest guys in Hollywood. Um, I completely agree. Yeah. Like, everybody always makes fun of him for like that one particular segment of his career <laughs> where he was doing like the most bizarre movies he could get his like paws on to distance Love him that from. for him. Love Those movies him. were so good. Yeah. Like I actually watched the majority of them and he's willing to take on some like really like niche sort of roles like one of my favorites of his that's kind of controversial is horns i just love the character that he plays in horns and the fact that he even starred on a broadway musical i think is super funny as well and he's actually a really good singer oh yeah i've, I've got to look that up i that's I, ashamedly i have not heard of horns so i should look yes. that up yeah it's um basically diverging very quick Horns is about, it's an adaptation of a Joe Hill novel following a man whose girlfriend has been mysteriously murdered. Everybody in town thinks he did it because he's the boyfriend. And also he got blackout drunk the night she died. And he also can't really remember what happened. They had a huge blowout fight that night, which is why he got blackout drunk. But the whole town is basically accusing him of being a murderer. Then he has this catastrophic mental breakdown. And then he wakes up the next morning and he has literal horns sprouting from his head. And he's walking around and he's like, yo, do you see this? And everybody are like, yeah, they're there. <laughs> Nobody around him acknowledges that they're weird or like this is out of place. They don't even mention it unless he explicitly points them out. But then he learns like these horns, like they give people the compulsion to like divert, like divulge their greatest like compulsions. Like they'll be like, like they'll hold up like a bottle of vodka and they'll be like, wouldn't it be awesome if I could just down this in one swing? Mm-hmm. And they can see about the horns. He can give them the ability to do so. He says, yeah, you should do that. They'll do it. And then he realizes he can use this to figure out who killed his girlfriend. And that's when things get very interesting. That sounds, it's, to bring it back to Bojack, that sounds a lot like the way Bojack very successfully, like, combines realism with surrealism or with hyperrealism or with fantasy. Like, it, I, I love that about the show. So I love, uh, I love media that uses those kind of formats, I guess you could say, storytelling style. Um, also on, on the topic of celebrities, you know, again, being willing to debase themselves, um, not to compare every animated show to the Simpsons, but like, 
I had three parents, you know, Mark, Diane, and Matt Groening. And so um, there was a period of The Simpsons, which we've talked about on our three separate episodes on The Simpsons, when the celebrities that, that they had on, they were very, very nice to them. You know, like Alec Baldwin, like, wow, Alec Baldwin, you're an action star. And it's really, really awesome to see when uh, celebrities actually do have a bit of the sense of humor about themselves. I find also it's a different time now. Like, if you want to be a celebrity, if you want to be famous, you have to be a little bit self-deprecating now, I feel. That's that's just like a rule of Hollywood now. But it's, um, yeah, I, I, I think those are great. Um, so here's, I'm going to veer into a completely other uh, thing because there's a lot of high concept episodes of BoJack and a lot of things that diverge from the typical storytelling format. I think Free Churro might be a little overrated or maybe I just don't, feel as strongly about it as others do. Of all the unconventional or high concept episodes, this one never sticks out in my mind. Um, like that, mainly because I think the most endearing and memorable aspect of Bojack is the writing and the dialogue. And so when it's just Bojack and no one to bounce it off of, it loses its sip. The only line I remember in it is, my mother has died and now everything is worse. So that's, that's my controversial opinion. I'm not the biggest fan of Free Churro. I completely understand why people don't reach out. Personally, I have a big soft spot for it just because it's like a big moment of closure for Bojack. We've seen so much pain that has resulted from his relationship with his mother. And I think that's sort of the moment that he comes to terms with it, which I think is why it tends to be a favorite for people. <laughs> but I do think there are much, much better um, like conceptual episodes. Like mine, my favorite also tends to be one that a lot of people think is overrated, but I have such a soft spot for fish out of water. I love the way they delved into the aquatic world. There was so much love put into it. I, I actually wish that we returned to it for a few episodes because there was so much they weaved in there that we just never got to see again. That's not like, and the, the animators, like people can criticize the animation style all you want, but there are so many cute characters. And it like uh, some of my, like, um, and the seahorse, the, the baby seahorse is so cute. It's little cheeks. Like oh. it's almost as cute as baby Bojack, but um, yeah, like I I agree. And also a, like group love and the score that they did for that. Cause I think it was group love that actually scored that. I could be wrong, but I know they did the, the ending song to it that actually had lyrics. The music that drives that episode is freaking phenomenal. Oh yeah, like I, after I watched that episode for the first time, I would just listen to the soundtrack mm -hmm. because like, I don't know, it just has a way of like making like your heart swell. It's probably one of the best done scores in the entire series, which makes sense because it's the only episode in the series that has no dialogue. Mm -hmm. But I really just like loved all the themes they toyed with with that episode that were so strongly conveyed without a single word ever being said. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. Um, on the topic though, cause you mentioned closure uh, with, with Free Churro. So, and a uh, theme that I find connects Bojack and his mother is the idea of forgiveness and absolution. Uh, we've seen several depictions of Bojack's mother during her upbringing, which explain the way she is, but there's no implication that Bojack is required to forgive her. And at the same time, this ends up being Bojack's ultimate lesson. Like, there are, he, he can't simply be forgiven for his actions. A lot of his actions can be explained and chalked up to things that were beyond his control, but there's no, there's no obligation for anyone, you know, Hollyhock, Penny, anyone to forgive him. He keeps hoping that the impact of his actions will simply disappear when he's walking proof that those impacts don't disappear. So I do agree that Bojack and his mother are fantastic parallels. Um, 
I think to me, like the better like tribute to Bojack's mother episode is um, Time's Arrow. To be honest, it was funny when when Free Churro came up. I was like, oh damn, I thought she was already dead. Like, I just I kind of forgot about her <laughs> until that episode. Because oh, Time's Arrow, yeah, Time's Arrow is such a great episode that really Time's Arrow and uh, some of the other episodes that have shown her background. Um, cause yeah, it shows that like, yeah, there is a reason for her being the way she is. It doesn't make her any less horrible because I think they're really good at hitting the beats. Like, oh yes, you feel very sorry for her, but she also just like treated Bojack terribly. Exactly. And I feel like that's the thing that a lot of people tend to misunderstand about the show because a lot of people complain, like getting an explanation for why people act the way they do as like justification for why they act the way they do. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a very big error because I think it's important to understand how these kinds of people develop. I feel like people tend to have a very black and white view of morality. And mm -hmm. I understand why, because that's comforting. It's comforting to imagine, oh, some people are just fundamentally evil and they're out there and there's nothing that I can do about it. And the reality that, no, that's not really the case, that a lot of these people are molded into the way they are and it doesn't make the way they are any less right, is very scary for them. Mm -hmm. uh, I love the way, circling back to what you said earlier, the way the show approaches the concept of forgiveness. Mm -hmm. uh, because I think it really does show like how even, how atonement can be for like personal gain and how you are not entitled to forgiveness regardless of how much regret you hold. How sometimes, in Diane's old words to steal her, sometimes life's a bitch and you keep on living. Sometimes you just have to live with the awful thing you did. And I think it also does a good job of showing that, but also showing that doesn't necessarily mean you have to like condemn yourself. Mm -hmm. like, like Bojack does deserve to like suffer for what he did. He does deserve to pay, you know, to pay a certain price. And I think he does get his like due justice in the last season. But at the same time, the show also leaves the doors open. Well, now perhaps he can live like a good, fulfilling life. We don't know because this is the point where we leave him. But the opportunity is still there and we can still have the hope that he embraces that. And I think that's a very valuable message to have. Yeah, I agree. I think there's also an aspect of Bojack, like of the almost like need for punishment. We see the way he like begs Diane to tell him he's good or begs Diane to tell him he's not good. And the way like, I mean, and this just goes with the carceral system in general, he is afraid to leave prison because you know he is afraid to be left up to his own devices again bojack is more comfortable with other people judging him than he is with judging himself and evaluating himself and evaluating his own decisions so that's um yeah and i, I even like thinking about forgiveness and atonement uh from the very first season i sometimes think like okay you know one of the biggest blows to bojack was herb saying i don't forgive you how much happier would he have been if Herb had just said, I forgive you? Because I sometimes think that's a thing people really take for granted with forgiveness is like, it's just someone's words. And I've, I've had that experience where someone says, I forgive you. I'm like, oh, that doesn't actually feel better because I still have to live with the thing I did, you know? I completely agree. And I genuinely, I genuinely think that if Herb had said, I forgive you, it still would have made next to no difference to Bojack. Mm -hmm. I still think he would have harbored a similar amount of guilt. I still think he would have perceived that as the moment that everything went wrong. Um, one of the things that I find very interesting, veering off topic slightly, is the parallel between Herb and Kelsey. Mm. Both of them fall out with Bojack for very similar reasons. Both are fired unjustly, and both of those relationships completely deteriorate because Bojack never makes the effort to reach out. And granted, he does make the effort with Kelsey and Fish out of water, but unfortunately, that doesn't work out. Mm -hmm. 
And I think that's so interesting because I feel like Kelsey could have had like a very similar dynamic with Bojack that he had with her. Maybe not like, um, you know, like the casual repertoire, but she could have been a good friend in the industry that wanted to make like meaningful art like, in the way that Herb did, even though what he produced was her horse and around. Mm-hmm. I think they shared very similar like artistic ambitions and goals. And I think they truly could had the potential to be strong allies. It just didn't work out due to the fact that Bojack has a very hard time prioritizing people outside of himself. Mm-hmm. I think also one of the things with Kelsey that's interesting is, um, and this, it's funny, season two of Peak Show was when I started feeling comfortable talking about the fact that I have bipolar disorder. So now I'm like, season three, we're just totally going to lean in to Breeze Bipolar Disorder, Breeze Bipolar Wild Ride. Um, but I love that, the bipolar wild ride. <laughs> which, you know, I, coincidentally, I hate roller coasters, but um, my life is enough of a roller coaster. I am bipolar too, though, so I'm more more sleepy bipolar than, than scary bipolar. Um, that said, um, one of the things that I find interesting about personality disorders, which I think most people have speculated if there's anything with Bojack is borderline. Um, however, there's a lot of themes of bipolar that I see, um, multiple characters in the show, um, particularly Diane, but, um, one of the things with living with a personality disorder, especially an undiagnosed personality disorder, which up until a few years ago, I was undiagnosed is, um, the inability to know whether or not a relationship is good for you. And I'm not just talking romantic relationships. And it's what kind of relationship are you most comfortable with? And one thing I find interesting also, like, I, um, not to brag here, I had a very good childhood. Um, I had like, you know, very supportive parents and a super kind brother. Um, You know, I was bullied a lot at school. But first of all, does that surprise anyone knowing how I turned out? But um, so because I didn't have a lot of friends, I was the, I didn't become good at judging what makes a good friend. And because I was historically very hard on myself, um, I sought out people who were very hard on me. I sought out people who were very critical of me because I viewed that as challenging me. And you want friends who challenge you. You want peers and colleagues who challenge you. But sometimes when you have had a history of personality disorders, of self-loathing, of bad interpersonal relationships, you don't know the difference between someone who is critical and someone who challenges you versus someone who simply puts you down. And I think Kelsey was a great example of someone who challenged him in the right ways. Whereas you look at someone like um, probably Vance Wagner being the most obvious, like that's someone who's just toxic and who uses your low self-esteem. And so I think I really love the dynamic between Bojack and Kelsey. I feel like Again, maybe if we'd had the, that extra season or two, if we could have seen them reunite. I'm glad Kelsey got her happy ending, but I loved that dynamic of friendship between them. I really love it too. And I think like the line that actually kind of like sums up best how Bojack perceives his dynamic is when he makes that joke, like, well, it's not like you liking me will prove that like an older authority figure finds me valuable and <laughs> yeah. gets my life meaning or something along those lines. But I think... Whenever I think of their relationship, I always think of that scene where they're secretly filming that shoot for Secretariat. Mm-hmm. And he breaks down crying because he, she says that she saw that he had the ability to basically act like that the entire time. And I feel like people like, tend to interpret that scene one of two ways. They either interpret it as her like complimenting his acting ability, knowing that he always had that talent, or always knowing that he was able to relate to Secretariat's feelings of brokenness and isolation, like just seeing it first off. And to him, him perceiving that as confirmation of the fact that he is broken. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And I always think it's really, personally, I view it as a mixture of both. Him both receiving validation that he's more than just like a tacky sitcom actor, but him also receiving kind of like a small affirmation of something he's been fearing about himself the entire season, that there is something flawed within him. Mm -hmm. Only difference is, Bojack perceives this like flaw as fundamental, something that he was born with. He was born broken. But I think Kelsey recognizes it as a product of being in the industry too long. She outright tells Diane that she believes that Bojack has reached his age of stagnation. And that could be a big portion of why he is the way she is. But she doesn't view him as somebody that was born this way. Mm -hmm. And to bring it back to Free Churro, one of the other few lines that does stick out from Free Churro is the way his mother says, I see you. And how those words like impact him so much, which I'm sorry, I saw the ICU pun coming from a mile away. Very happy with myself for that. But um, <laughs> but uh, I think that's that's Bojack's whole thing is being seen is an incredibly overwhelming thing for him because we see he has a childhood of never really being seen and how, you know, he uses he uses alcohol and, you know, it's doing stand-up being drunk as a way of not being seen because he could be a character that's why he loves his character on horse and around so much so when he realizes that someone actually sees him um i think that's a key moment for him and something he can't handle gosh i i love the way that the show approaches like the concept of identity or lack of when it comes to bojack because mm -hmm. i think a huge aspect of bojack's struggle is the fact that he doesn't feel like he has a solid sense of identity and so he has to supplement it with all these things around him. But it's a big reason as to why I feel he's so unstable in his day-to-day -day relationships, because he doesn't really have a hardcore foundation. Mm -hmm. So much of his life has consisted of performance from the time that he was a child, just doing whatever he believed would appease his parents. And he outright confesses, I believe, I believe also in Free Churro, to bring him back to Free Churro. <laughs> that he was terrified of both of his parents and it's played off a bit like a joke but when you're genuinely terrified of your parents you tend to just serve as a mirror of their own desires you just tend to mold yourself in a way that you believe will be pleasing to them and spare you and we see this also when he's a young adolescent he just morphs himself into whatever he believes his peers will find appealing that's kind of like a crass douchey teenage comic yeah and all of these like different like personas he assumes are for him, are things he assumes in the pursuit of love and the pursuit of affection and attention, but none of them are identities that he particularly likes or identifies strongly with. Mm -hmm. The one that I think he identifies most strongly with is the horse from Horse and Around, because the horse from Horse and Around is like this lovable family man, like the perfect archetype of you know a stand-up guy and i think that's how he wants to be seen he wants to be seen as a good person but he doesn't have any idea like the qualities that consists of so he's just sort of mimicking what he believes a good person is yeah i i agree um i think um i i don't know if you've read jeanette mccurdy's memoir i'm glad my mom died i loved it um she's she is wonderful that memoir was wonderful and i just think um it's, it really is, it never ceases to amaze me at this point that like, there seems to be a reason why many people who end up in Hollywood, especially from a young age are, you know, have mental illness, come from troubled backgrounds, come have difficult relationships with their families. Because I feel like if you have that stability and you have that sense of self-worth, you know, to get out at a certain point, uh, which is just a very sad thing, which is also why I'm like, I love Daniel Radcliffe just being his little weird self now. But um, yeah, it it really truly does remind me of that. Um, on the topic of LA and Hollywood, um, 
So as I mentioned, being a trade reporter in the entertainment industry and particularly in the streaming industry, um, I don't think people who have ever, who have never worked in the entertainment or specifically like the entertainment and tech industries realize how some of the absolutely ridiculous plots about the industry in that show mirror the actual industry, especially around the mid 2010s. For example, a site like What Time Is It Right Now having a streaming original probably seems like just like rando humor, but in 2015, 2016, every site was experimenting with long and short form content, regardless of whether or not they were actually in the content business. Like, does anyone remember Go90? No, of course you don't, because Verizon just launched a streaming arm for no reason, and it was only for Verizon customers, and that was back when they were convinced we were all going to flip our phones 90 degrees and watch our watch shows like that. I mean, non like that's why that's why we had Crackle, like all these things just randomly launching streaming arms. And oh yeah, we still have Crackle in Canada. They didn't kill it here for some reason. <laughs> we don't have Hulu, but we got Crackle. So um, yeah, that's. There's also like, for me, the way major projects would fail and the executives who tank the whole thing would just hop to another executive role, which is one of the most cynical aspects of the entertainment industry. But we like, I was glad we had a couple plot lines about that because I'm like that, it really do be like that. I think probably I love the way that it portrays like the incompetency of like Hollywood executives. I think it's one of the funniest aspects of the show. Um, also the way they approach like the whole concept of network executives my favorite one of my favorite side characters is wanda pierce just like mm -hmm. the whole stick that she's like stuck in the 80s to showcase how <laughs> it's just this endless cycle of trends being recycled and recycled and recycled because well it's like she's been knocked out 30 years and that's kind of how it feels like sometimes i see like just certain things greenlit and i'm like wow another one just another one to add to like the pyramid of identical ideas that have just mm -hmm. been washed and rehashed and recycled I, i've said before that i like eagerly anticipate the day that we run out of things to reboot mm -hmm. like there's no more content we've rebooted everything we've done reboots of the reboots they're no longer profitable mm -hmm. and we just have to make original content again that's the <laughs> only way we can make profit i crave that day according to my protections i think it's coming sometime in 2035 but we'll see <laughs> i uh had a recent like interesting experience because i uh like my parents got me the most wonderful christmas gift which was one of those like gray market iptv boxes and uh which is great because i am a big sports fan so i get to like all of our sports in Canada is kind of fractured into like two different networks. And I'm like, I don't feel like paying for two different streaming services. And I, I want to watch the Raptors and the Leafs. So, um, but uh, they have a lot of on-demand content and a lot of like older content. Um, and I, uh, being a lifelong dancer and dance teacher was like, hey, I wonder if they have old episodes of So You Think You Can Dance or in the BoJack universe, I think it's called, Hey, I Think You Can Dance. Um, and it's... Um, and I was watching and I was like, wow, I kind of took for granted how much the first couple seasons were just American Idol, but for dance. And I was realizing, no, it's like they said, you know what we like about uh, American Idol is like the meanness and the hopeless auditioners. Let's try to find another format to put that on. And so that's how, how I feel like a lot of a lot of these Hollywood trends are recycled is like, oh, well, people really like the mean aspect of this, or people really like the betrayal aspect of this. Let's put it on an island. Like, no, I completely agree, especially when it comes to reality television. Like that meanness aspect, I feel like they tried to replicate that in every format that it was possible. Cooking shows, gardening shows. I think 
the only reason we've seen a recent turnaround is due to the popularity of the Great British Baking Show. Mm-hmm. I think when people saw like the outpouring of praise, they got, oh, it's so sweet. It's so wholesome. Everybody's uplifting and supportive of each other. Every exec that saw that said, okay, time to reel it in the opposite <laughs> direction. We're going in the opposite direction. We're going nice. Do you think in the BoJack universe uh, that the um, that the judge is Paul Hollywood? <laughs> uh, I will say, if anyone can, if I know I have a decent amount of American listeners, if anyone can get their hands on the Canadian version, the Canadian version is actually wonderful. And I have to say, actually, I think the bakers are better. The, something yeah. in the water here, I don't know. We produce ver- like way better bakers. So that's nice. Um, I'm going to have to check that out. I didn't even know there was a Canadian version of the Great British Bake Off. The, the CBC here, we just like do a Canadian version of everything. We got Family Feud Canada, like all that fun shit. So um, yeah, it's very sweet. Dan Levy hosts the first season or first two seasons, I think. So and everyone loves Dan Levy. Is, are people sick of him yet? I don't know. Um, but um <laughs> You know, I was thinking about like, you know, and I know the joke when a ridiculous TV show is pitched now, people will say like, oh, that sounds like a 30 Rock show. I would actually say that there are certain things I'm like, that sounds like a joke they would make on BoJack. And like this, you know, this is coming out uh, first week of February. But like this week, everyone's talking about MILF Manor. That sounds like something they would have launched on BoJack. I'm sorry. Like. Oh, my God. Okay. This is my first time hearing of the better. I have made it my mission to not learn anything about it, but I will say I think it has maybe some coinciding with this Jennifer Coolidge renaissance we're seeing right now, but I don't think she actually has anything to do with it. But I'm like, obviously they know that there's a lot of, there's going to be some irony watching behind it. But nevertheless, I'm like, just that, that MILF is such a big part of our current nomenclature that we're willing to we're willing to put money behind a show called Milf Manor. Like that, is, that feels like a Bojack joke. It is a Bojack joke. Yeah. I swear I saw the same thing. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh my goodness. Yeah. It's a Bojack joke. I can't believe that something like that is airing. That's also why, like, the idea of like Felicity Huffman's Booty Academy, again, it sounds like rando humor, but that is, there have been so many reality shows that are essentially that. Like, I mean, I think of, 10 years ago, 15 years ago now, there was the search for the next Pussycat doll show, which my roommates and I used to watch. And like, it was the one show we could agree on that we liked. And it was like, it would try to turn these lessons into like, you know, life lessons about confidence and owning who you are. But it was like, now put your boot pads on and and shake it for daddy. Like (laughs) Uh, the Dallas Cowboy cheerleader thing. There was one, there was a version of both of those shows they did for Broadway kids. Mm-hmm. They were trying to cast like the next legally blonde star. I remember that. Yeah. Oh gosh, but it's it's so weird seeing this. Like, like an, one of the ones that I feel like is a, like a major BoJack joke is I don't know if this ever actually made it to air, but I remember there was a huge controversy with one of the Stranger like kids, like one of the Stranger Things kids, mm-hmm. um, was going to host a prank show where they pranked people that were interviewing for jobs mm-hmm. and we were like that's messed up in this economy but I feel like that sounds like a Bojack joke you know oh yeah and they love making jokes about child stars on Bojack um, oh, yeah. yeah absolutely that that does come across like a Bojack joke on that note around the time they had the search for the next Elle Woods again CBC doing just Canadian versions of American shows we had one of the search for Dorothy because they were Mervish was doing a new um a new Wizard of Oz, and I auditioned for it. And I auditioned, it's like most talent reality shows, 
there are rounds of auditions before you actually get in front of a camera. And I auditioned for producers and I got cut because I was too plain. So, I mean, I, I'm also, I'm more of a dancer than a singer and Dorothy doesn't dance. So that's, that's the whole thing. But um, yeah, like we just, you know, that's one thing I would love more of to see in, in uh, TV comedy is the Canadian entertainment industry and it's bad, like knockoff kind of like Walmart reproductions of US shows. So yeah, I, I know I mentioned this at the beginning of the episode, but so I want to circle back to one thing. I'm not normally a fan of non-voice actors doing voice acting, um, but more in the sense, like, I'm not, sh- I'm not a fan of like, hey, we've got Zendaya in the new Space Jam movie, like, because that that's stunt casting. I think BoJack might be one of the best executed shows that uses traditional actors instead of voice actors. And I think it's in large part because the actors present, aside from, I'd say, Alison Brie, they are doing highly exaggerated versions of their own voice and creating like a voice character, unlike say Chris Pratt in the new Mario movie or the cast of Velma. Like I think all of those actors, especially Amy Sedaris, have very special voices. To bring it back to Canadian media and sports, um, that was a big thing was in, uh, well, it would have been 2021, Amazon produced, or it was the... Um, it was uh, a documentary about the season of the Toronto Maple Leafs uh, when they were in the COVID bubble. And uh, it was supposed to be like, cause the Toronto Maple Leafs famously have not won a playoff round since 2004. Like the Toronto, the Toronto Maple Leafs have not won a playoff round since I was a virgin. Um, they haven't run, they haven't won a Stanley cup since 1967. Um, and uh, you know, that is my burden. That is what I, what I live with. Um, I, I love my boys anyway, but it was narrated by Will Arnett for, you know, famously of Toronto uh, and a big Leafs fan. And it's fantastic to hear him saying like, man, I hate the Habs in his Will Arnett voice. But I'm like, oh, that's just Bojack talking about hating the Montreal Canadiens. I love that. <laughs> oh, Bojack not only hates the Montreal Canadiens. <laughs> yeah, I, I love that also. And I've said this on the podcast before, and I mean this sincerely. I love the way Americans say Montreal. They, oh, they no. Yeah, a I'm lot of them. How, so how well, I find we say it more like, and this is if you're Anglo-Canadian, we say like M-U-N, like Montreal. Uh, and I know that Americans tend to say it more like a, like a long O or an A, like Montreal. Um, okay, okay. Yeah. Mont- My father is French, so we would say like Montreal at home. But yeah. Um, yeah, that's so uh, I agree with you. Kristen Chenoweth is one of my favorite voice performances. Um, there's there's nothing about her voice that makes me go, oh, my God, it's Kristen Chenoweth. But she's just so well suited for the role. And I think so that's an example of someone of a voice actor being properly cast for a voice, just like a regular actor is cast for a look. Um, and you can just hear her using vocal techniques to create this sing songy character, which comes from being a highly accomplished theater actor. It's such a great example of acting with the voice. Yeah, I think so too. I also like how they, they they did like such a good job of aligning the voices to each character. Like if I like just saw like the profiles, like just like the character sketches themselves, I would automatically assume for the majority of them they had the voices they did. Like Rabinowitz sounds absolutely like a Rabinowitz. Mm-hmm. Um, Hollyhock has like I I, I love Hollyhock's voice. Mm-hmm. Sort of this like shy endearing quality that you see mm-hmm. in like girls that are just like there on the cusp of adult, cusp of adulthood. I I also love um the fact that um 
the creator of BoJack voices um, Charlie Witherspoon. Charlie Witherspoon. That's so, so great. <laughs> I, I also just love that Charlie Witherspoon is, and you see this with a few other side characters, but he's a character out of another show. He's a character out of like a very broad kind of Jerry Lewis, like, oh no, I screwed up again. And I just... <laughs> I like that Bojack, like Charlie Witherspoon is a great example of how the show will go from hyper realism to a cartoon. And that's why, like, again, like King of the Hill, a lot of people always said, why is this even a cartoon? It could be live action. It's like, no, there are so many things that like a cartoon opens up the world. The cartooniness of Bojack does open up the world of it so much. I completely agree. I personally, I love like the Charlie Witherspoon Nepo baby bits, like Mm -hmm. the fact that I think like it's literally one episode to the next. He's an intern, and then he has like a slightly higher job title than Princess Carolyn, which I think is so funny. But he's still just as incompetent. Uh, I'm trying to think of another character that like sparks that feeling in me. I love, I love the meta bits with MSNBC. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I think they're so funny, especially like rewatching like older news segments from like the early 2000s. I think that's such like a funny reference to like what the news cycle looked like at that time or like how reporters interacted with their with their audience mm-hmm. um, I think um <laughs> probably like one of my favorites again um like what one of my favorite like little caricatures of s- s- like a similar words 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 <laughs> <laughs> one of my favorite examples is um meow meow fuzzy face i think he's just like, <laughs> such like a good like knockoff example of like you know like cop shows like yeah <laughs> I, I love like oh, go no i i was actually kind of off topic sometimes we call my cat officer meow meow fuzzy face Oh, yeah but I totally agree and there are other shows that have tried to do the cops trying to find their cop sitcom like humor I just think it's done best with him because sometimes others play along with them sometimes they don't but it's like Charlie Witherspoon he's just he's a character who's in another show yes mm-hmm. I, I love um like the bits with him and his like patrol group like where they try to figure out what like cop archetype he is they have mm-hmm. like they have like a boat on it they have like a unit boat on it which i think is super funny yeah i think in another universe like meow meow fuzzy face and his whole like unit are just a knockoff version of brooklyn 99 like they are the (laughs) brooklyn 99 of the bojack universe yeah and that's actually a cool thing and there was a whole episode about this and like you i can't i cannot remember the name of it but in which um you know uh, Rabidowitz says, and Radassa Gecko are saying, like, we're the good guys. And a good reminder of, like, the these people are also starring in their own TV show. Um, it's been a running joke on this epi- on this podcast that I will never do. Um, I will never do an episode on community because my feelings about community, um, the negatives about them are too strong. Um, but I do have a lot of positive feelings about community. I just also think a lot of people regard community as this like golden child that we can't touch. Um, one of my favorite bits, and I think it's the second season of community is where like, there's the group of students saying like, oh, we had, we had one, we almost had one class where it wasn't about them and implying that like, there are people in the community college who have their own adventures and stuff, but we're just too busy focusing on Jeff and the gang. I think Bojack like often alludes to that there are other people who are off having their own adventures like well i mean we have a whole todd episode about it yeah i i I agree i actually really like that about like bojack because i feel like a lot of shows tend to regard like side characters as sort of like these prop pieces Mm -hmm. like like these static like 
just these static things on a check on a checkboard that are just revolve around like the main character. Mm-hmm. I really love the moments where Bojack calls out, "No, all of these are like people with complex, detailed backstories and equally complex current lives mm-hmm. that don't revolve around our main character." And they do this subtly, like a lot of times. Like I think, like for example, with Robitowitz and Vanessa Gecko. But I think my favorite, like direct call out, is when Bojack meets up with Charlotte expecting her to be like the same 20 something he knew briefly when he first moved to Hollywood and she's grown up she has a husband two kids she loves very much an established business and doesn't really have a world where he exists within it which is very very difficult for him to process in the show mm-hmm. yeah I can't believe we've gone this long without talking about Charlotte or Penny or or Sarah Lynn um probably because they are like the I mean it was like my my unfortunate experience was about four years ago. And so like I can now talk about the Sarah Lynn stuff without like bawling my eyes out. But I just when I look at Sarah Lynn, like I always think like, you know, the line about like someone paid me twenty thousand dollars to wear this shirt. And I just like the idea that someone wanted me to wear their shirt. Um, and Bojack and Sarah Lynn being being parallels for one another. And also I think even like um the way they chase validation i also love to think about the ways in which bojack and sarah lynn are different um which i think comes from the fact like age generation also gender that like um what i thought was interesting is about sarah lynn's arc is that when she became more famous after horsing around how much of her um fame and her songs and her image was tied to i'm not a little girl anymore i'm grown up which is exactly what we saw them do with britney and christina they had to go through their i'm not innocent phase and what that freaking does just putting taking your developing mind and putting it out on display for the public to objectify and what effect that has on you you know i think i think they i mentioned this earlier on but I think like the whole gag of Sextina Aquafina is a very, very good example of that because Sexta, Sextina Aquafina's whole shtick is that she's 14, right? Mm-hmm. And a lot of people see that and they're like, oh, that's a joke about how we like sexualize and promote like girls that haven't even hit adulthood yet. But the joke is dolphins hit sexual maturity at 14. Mm-hmm. So we're saying that basically as soon as like a girl reaches what we think is quote unquote sexual maturity, that's when we went and bass them. And that's when we try to like rob them of like any traces of like childhood or innocence and even if they're still like very much obviously a child and I think they did such a good example of that with Sarah Lynn just showing like how the industry just sort of takes you choose you up spits you out and then moves on to the next new thing to consume Mm -hmm. Uh, but I also I think one of the things that's really interesting about her character is that even though she's a grown woman she's still very childlike in many ways yeah like I think a little bit of like the age of stagnation, you're stuck at the age you become famous. But I also think she never truly had an opportunity to be a child in like a normal, healthy way. She never had an appropriate model for what development looked like. So I think it makes sense that she still acts like like a very young person, even though she's in her 30s. Yeah, I constantly forget that Sarah Lynn, because I always you think of her as a character who's maybe in her 20s and that she is, you know, probably around my age when she dies. Um, I know that her I know that her stepfather obviously is coded uh, like is pedophile coded, I guess. Is that a term? Um, but he's because he's his design is based on a real person. I forget who. But um, oh, my gosh, I did a video on this. His name escapes me, but he's modeled after, I believe, a real photographer. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to say he was on Vogue. But he was also accused of he had multiple sexual misconduct cases levied against mm-hmm. him by his um, subjects. Is that what you call people? Models. Um, yeah. And 
the design is very similar. He wears an identical jacket. He has the same glasses. Terry um, something, I think. Yes. Yeah. He's literally like a bear in reference to like the pedo bear memes of like the early 2000s. Um, mm-hmm. I think he even puts on like a similar voice, but yeah, it's um, it, it it's whenever I think of like the scenes of Sarah Lynn and her stepfather, I think they're like such a jab in the heart because mm-hmm. she never truly had a safe space like ever. Like even when she was a child, her only true like her only like like moment I guess of like solace, like her only refuge from that was a place that was just as exploitative and just as negative but it's very sad to think about like the fact that she's never truly known like the peace or stability that other characters have and ultimately Mm -hmm. dies partially as a result of that absolutely i had to look it up because it was going to bother me if i didn't remember terry richardson is you were so close terry instead of terry terry richardson yes 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 so yeah he's um and i i agree with you and i think that's why you know, like um, to bring it back to Jeanette McCurdy's book, I loved the interview that she did on the podcast, The Financial Confessions with like, I guess, friend of the show, Chelsea Fagan. She's taken me out for dinner a couple of times. So friend of Brie. Um, so uh, and she's um, in which she said, like, you know, she fully believes that like she ha- was developmentally in many ways, like advanced, but then also very stagnated for her age because you had to deal with adult things. But you also stopped going through like proper rites of passage. You stopped learning how to self-actualize and how like with with Sarah Lynn, it was that she derived her self-actualization from praise and, you know, laughter that she would get on the show. And it wasn't help. It was reinforced by, you know, Bojack saying like, you know, this is the closest thing to a family you will ever have. And, um, you know, that's why I really love, even though like he only shows, I think he shows up about as much as he needs to, but the character of Bradley Hitler Smith, like the smartest thing he did was get out. The smartest thing Joelle did was, was leave Hollywood. I mean, I know she became like a stage actress or whatever, but like the smartest thing these characters do is get out. And what is sad is Bradley has a great life. He, you know, owns a hardware store and has a family that he loves. But then he still thinks, oh, maybe I want to go back to that because people adored me back then. It's like, oh, it's, you know, to to reduce it to a cliche, it's a bit of a grass is greener thing, but it's because you will never get the, like, it is a drug metaphor. You will never get the high of audience praise uh, anywhere else. Exactly. Um, I, I think, what, what, I think like, in terms of like professionalism, I think when it comes to child stars, they're expected to conduct themselves like professionally in terms of like their personal skills acting on an adult level. But when it comes to just relating to other human beings, I find like that tends to be the area that many of them say they have virtually no skill in. And I think you see this a lot with Sarah because she doesn't, she doesn't really like know how to navigate like a lot of like adult social situations. She has like, I think a big part of that is due to the fact that she's it feels like she's given up almost like when we first meet her like she literally like makes a remark in the first episode we see her and that oh it's just my fate to die tragically young I'm just sort of Mm -hmm. you know riding the waves waiting for the inevitable yeah but I completely lost my original train of thought but we're just gonna spitball (laughs) (laughs) well I was gonna say like with with Penny that's why as much as Penny is probably one of the characters who's done dirtiest by Bojack what I will say makes me feel better about the character of Penny is that she is, and I think it's important because like, shows don't have to be morality plays. Shows don't have to show us how things should be. 
But it does feel a lot less like icky and cynical watching it to see that Penny is a character who has a support system, who has an extremely healthy relationship with her whole family. And that we see that even though what she went through with Bojack did forever change her, how much better it is that she can speak with her parents about it and how you see Charlotte saying like, we're going to get through this together. And so I think like, I don't know, because as heavy as a show as it is, like, I feel like I needed to see that in the last season. Oh, yes. No, I think the scene, like one of the final conversations that um, Charlotte has with Penny is almost healing because even though you see how much this event has impacted them, when we leave them in season two, we're, we just have this huge, like, what if we don't know, like, what the falling out looked like? We don't know how this continued to shape Penny as a young adult until we see Bojack confront her on her college campus, which I don't think people really emphasize how deranged that was. Oh, my but God. Yeah. The distant- <laughs> Like a lot of people seem to think that Oberlin is also in California. And I'm like, no, Oberlin is in Ohio. He drove from coast to coast mm-hmm. to make this visit. Multiple days of driving. Um, and I think just like to show like how like the love that Charlotte has for how she wants to shield her even as like a young adult and make sure that she isn't just tormented by this one horrible thing that happened when she a child is very is very touching especially compared to the other terrible parents we see throughout the course of bojack mm-hmm. i think charlotte's sort of our shining star yeah i agree all right so we're going we're heading into the lightning round and so this is a great like you know i always say with the lightning round don't overthink a darn thing but you you can't explain yourself but just don't overthink anything so we're going to go through 10 questions starting with which central character do you identify with the most oh diane awesome <laughs> I would say I am a bit of a, and I know these two characters don't seem alike at all, but a Mr. Peanut Butter meets a Princess Carolyn. Um, I am, you know, relentlessly positive and have been told that I can't take a hint. Um, But I would say my, um, my like need to identify myself with my job and my steadfast belief that that's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, And like the fact that I know where I am comfortable, I know where I belong, that. I'm a Princess Carolyn, I would say. Oh, wow. That's a great combination, actually. Thanks. What are some of the Diane traits that you see in yourself? Some of the Diane traits. Okay, for a long time, I was a writer that could not write about myself. There oh. was so much. I remember wanting to write like a similar like series of artworks like about my own personal traumas to process them, but I could never find like a way to put them in words. And like just a lot about like Diane's like the way that Diane perceives her own self-worth is something I struggled a lot with as well. Um, and just the fact that she spends a long time believing that, like, in her own words, a pit that good things fall into, the fact that she believes, like, she's the buzzkill, she's the killjoy. I really relate to, like, the sense of isolation that she feels in, like, large social settings and, like, um, like kind of, like, her desperation for, like, a friend, like, some, like, solid point of contact to keep her anchored. I find that struggle like I, that struggle speaks to me a lot because I felt similarly adrift for a long time like especially in my early 20s so I just really appreciate her as a character and when I watched like her recovery arc that was like a big inspiration f- for me to recover as well mm-hmm. so okay who is your least favorite central or supporting character least favorite least favorite central or supporting character ah <sighs> 
there's a gag character that comes to mind. I was not a big fan of Vincent Adult Man. I just felt he went on slightly too long. Just a little too long. You know, yeah, I would agree with you. Um, I think like they, it's one of those things where like, I get that they were leaning on the broadness of it because Bojack does mix broad and subtle humor, but because the joke is annoying in nature, it's like, you really have to be careful. That's a pretty potent spice to put in your jelly. Like, exactly. Yeah. I would also say that at times I felt it was difficult to watch uh, arcs involving Anna Spanakopita. Um, the intensity of her and Angela Bassett's voice acting was amazing. I just found that she's a character that had very little payoff in the end. And I think she functioned to make me uncomfortable and sad. And I don't deal as a Mr. Peanut Butter. I don't do well with being uncomfortable and sad. Oh gosh, speaking of characters that function to make you uncomfortable and sad, I felt Flip had like a very similar dynamic. I yes. Just, like, like I think Flip, like Flip was written with the with the screenwriters just looking at Rami Malek's stare, like the intensity <laughs> of Rami Malek's stare, but he's like so, he's so jarring. I think he's a fascinating character, but whenever he speaks, I feel deeply uncomfortable. Yeah, I, I fully agree. So on on that, on the flip side, who is your supporting cast MVP? My supporting cast MVP, uh, probably Judah. I just love Judah. He's my boy. He's the autistic representation I have craved my entire life. <laughs> I um, love him. I, I just absolutely adore him in every way. I also love Ruthie. Ruthie wasn't there for very long, but I think she's so adorable. One of the cutest babies I've ever seen. Again, that's why I'm just like, don't knock the animation style entirely until you see those bright eyes. Mm. Um for me, and this is not a character that I know you're supposed to like, but I would say Beatrice Horseman. Um, and and Wendy Malick, who I hate to say it, but for some reason, when Jessica Walter passed away, Jessica Walter, like all timer for me, I'm just like, well, any roles that were offered to her are surely going to get offered to Wendy Malick now because they had a similar archetype of playing the grand but very intimidating older woman. Um, I And... To the point where because um, Jessica Walter did the voice of Mallory Archer, I often confused the two in terms of their voices and took me a while to remember which one's Wendy Malick and which one's... But I digress. Wendy Malick's performance as Beatrice is so chilling and wonderful. Yeah. And I think like anytime she shows up, that's a character who's full of dread, but you're just like, oh, what's she going to do now? Like, I feel like Beatrice's lines are so cutting, like... Every time, every rewatch I've ever had of Bojack, whenever she shows up on screen, I get like this ball in my stomach because I know exactly what she's going to say. It's like she's saying it to you. <laughs> um, she's, I feel like she stole like every scene she was in. I feel like she also has like some of the most unforgettable moments in the show. I agree. There are, there have been times when my cat is like being really annoying. He, he diligently eats every day at six and six. And so he wakes us. But sometimes like when I'm refusing to feed him because it's 520 or whatever, I just look at him like, oh. I'm punishing you for being alive. <laughs> Sorry, Ben. Um, yeah. So, okay. That's so funny because me and my sister actually have a similar recurring joke. In which you refuse to feed her? Or no? <laughs> no, no, no. And not, not, but like whenever we refuse to like do something for each other, like, yo, can you do the dishes? I'm like, no. Why? I'm punishing you. For being <laughs> That's amazing. Fantastic. All right. So um, what is your favorite high concept episode? My favorite high concept episode. Oh gosh. Let's see. I already voiced my love for fish out of water. Ah, good damage. I love mm -hmm. good damage. Um, sort of like like the sketchiness of the animation to reflect Diane's like convoluted state of mind. I love like how 
like it, it goes from like very like like abstractions to like very detailed art um I love the appearance of Ivy Chan I think mm -hmm. it's a good segue into like what Diane hopes to achieve through her career in comparison to what like she's currently striving for but isn't working out mm -hmm. um, it's also like a really like rapid fire episode like it's constantly bouncing from one voice to the next to the next to the next and I think it does like a very good job of like portraying like I, I think it's interesting that all of Diane's negative voices are like the previous like men she's interacted with mm -hmm. um but I think it does like a beautiful job of showing like Diane's conflict and the resolution that she eventually comes to I just love it a lot and I think it's a beautiful like depiction of like coming to terms with your depression or learning how to handle your depression in a way that works for you yeah um I also think like as I mentioned before Alison Brie is kind of the only member of the central cast who's not really doing an exaggerated form of their own voice like she's she's kind of just sticking to her Alison Brie voice and I think she finally gets to have some fun when she's doing the Ivy Tran voice and show like that she has a nice different different tempo to it and a different meter and shows that she actually is quite versatile as a voice actress. Um, so I'm not going to go with the same one because I did have good damage down there. I'm going to go with a real heartbreaker, which is Time's Arrow. Um, oh. And uh, as a spoiler alert, so next week's episode, we're talking about This Is Us, in which I also am going to be getting really in my feelings about Alzheimer's. Um, my, my grandmother uh, had Alzheimer's from officially 2004 to 2007 but my grandpa later was like nah she was gone for a long time um but um it's there are depictions of alzheimer's which aren't great uh or accurate and then there are portrayals of alzheimer's that are so difficult i have to turn off the tv like that's why i can't i can't finish watching that movie still alice i can't read the book um it's sorry that was a difficult time for me time zero is so ambitious because it shows the internalized aspects of alzheimer's which like the idea of forgetting faces and stuff this is stuff that we know from talking to experts on alzheimer's um and the way things blur and skip and yet it's unique because a lot of people with Alzheimer's are unable to tell their own story. Um, and so I thought that was just a fascinating and difficult episode. Um, and also, I will say the the music that accompanies the montage at the end when Henrietta has her baby, really, really well-timed. It's rare that they have something so on the nose in terms of music, but I'm just like, oh, what a fantastic episode. And Matthew Broderick, I always love when he gets to play someone a little villainous, and he's he's great in that episode. Gosh, I, I just remembered the music score and I actually got chills thinking about it. Mm -hmm. One of my favorite aspects of that episode is that when Beatrice is like sort of going through her story, the people that have caused her immense pain, like their faces tend to become more distorted throughout the course of the episode. Like after her mother receives her lobotomy, she can no longer remember her as her mother. She literally has like a shadow outline mm -hmm. where her mother is supposed to be. Um, and I also like the fact that details like glitch in and out of the episode, like as she's going through it, like I believe in the scene where she's having the confrontation with um, Butterscotch, the painting in the background is constantly shifting. Mm -hmm. But also um, when I think what Butterscotch says something, I'm coming to you with, I'm coming to you hat in hand and then a, ha a hat glitches into his hand because she remembers he was holding one. Mm -hmm. Okay, I so, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead, continue, continue. Okay, so who is a character, supporting or recurring, uh, who you think was underdeveloped or wasted or someone you wish you'd just seen more of? Oh, what an excellent question. Oh gosh, I'll have to think about that. I do think Kelsey is somebody that had a lot of potential to be like featured more often, mm -hmm. although I why they sort of split ways with her when they did. 
Mm-hmm. Um, let me think. I really, really, I, this isn't so much as a character as something that I wish they would have emphasized slightly more. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I do wish we had a bit more time with Bojack, like interacting with like his university students. Mm-hmm. I think that would have been very interesting because that's sort of the thing that like gave Bojack zest for life again, that made him find some form of healing. So I think it would have been valuable to see more of that time. Mm-hmm. Let's see, a character that was completely wasted. I do think they did a good job of like bringing characters back when necessary, but yeah, I'll have to get back to you on that one. There's not one that immediately jumps to mind. For me, the two who do jump to mind are uh, Guy. Like I said, I just wish we'd gotten to see a bit more progression of him because um, as much as it was nice to see Diane have something simple and not be chasing dysfunction, and I think you could do this without making him dysfunctional, um, I think in the end, Guy kind of becomes a bit of a... I guess opposite of a manic pixie dream girl because he's not entirely manic. He's your he's your stable dream man, but he exists almost as a, as a plot device for Diane for the betterment of herself. I do like that we get a little bit about him and his wife and him and his son, but I feel like that's like a, pretty much confined to a single episode. So I do wish we'd just gotten a little bit more out of Guy. Also, in terms of a character I really liked, who is just a little one note that I, if we had more time with her, it would have been great. But Maud, I think Maud was a great like last minute addition. But because she's a last minute addition, she's kind of a nothing character. Changing my answer, Maud. Yeah. I I forgot Maud existed until you right <laughs> a few episodes, and yet she's so she's so cute and endearing, and I would have loved to see more of her t- more of her and Todd's dynamic. Mm-hmm. I could watch like half a season of Maud episodes, like them just getting together their whole love story. I think it would have been so cute. Yeah. Okay. So this one was hard for me to find my own answer to, but is there a character or conflict in the show about whom or about which you have changed your mind since first watching? Oh gosh, that's a good, that's a good question. I think. So I, I, I've watched Bojack at like radically different stages of my life. When I was in high school, when I was first entering college after graduation, um, entering my early 20s, trying to get established. But I think I think my view on Diane, like I think, I think when, unfortunately, the trauma of young women tends to get overlooked a lot. And I think Diane, the reason she got so much hate in the earlier seasons, because I'm not sure how familiar you were, you were with the early Bojack fandom, but it was not a good place to be a Diane stan. No. Uh, I think in comparison to like the other characters, you go, oh, well, Bojack had a, hor- had a horrifically abusive set of parents or um, Princess Carolyn, you know, grew up with an alcoholic mother. And you see Diane's whole stick and, and have all like the resources to attain happiness and there's this question of why can't you that mm. I wasn't really able to empathize with until I morphed into Diane myself. Um, <laughs> this is my karma. Um, yeah. But I think when I was younger, it was very difficult for me to understand characters like that. Characters that had everything they possibly needed to fulfill themselves or attain what they wanted, but just couldn't, couldn't find fulfillment in that. I always, and I always found that like so frustrating when I was younger because I was like, get it together. But when growing up, I realized like more so like the nuances of that, like the fact that it's not as cut and dry and it appears and like the personal barriers that may be holding them back or the fact that they know they can't find food in these singular things. Mm-hmm. So I think Diane's probably the one that I've had like the most radical like change in perspective on. 
I would say you are correct in that. Um, I always found it interesting because I sometimes think that it early Diane was kind of like the dumping ground for, you know, straw feminism jokes and stuff and straw activist jokes. Um, and people love to complain about that. Um, one of the things I, um, so one, one of the things, this is probably like one of my more heartless beliefs, but um, I no longer am super, I no longer see these super cathartic, um, with the catharsis in Todd being the one to give, um, to give Bojack the smackdown and it's you. I understand the impact of you have to have your character who is an innocent and your character who's regularly happy-go-lucky be the one to scold him. However, I think it loses some impact when you take into account that the conflict that ultimately drove that, and I understand it was, you know, a straw that broke the camel's back, but that it was Bojack, con you know, consensually sleeping with someone else. And I mean, power dynamic is another issue there, but consensually sleeping with someone who taught to whom Todd expressed no interest and, you know, he wasn't even certain of his feelings toward her either. Um, the other thing being that, like, it's, I feel like it would have had more impact if Todd had been a person who had previously spoken out against Bojack's behavior at all or questioned Bojack's behavior at all. And, you know, someone like a Princess Carolyn or something, and maybe it's because we're so used to seeing princess, or even I would say Mr. Peanut Butter. I would have, I would have loved to see Mr. Peanut Butter give Bojack a smackdown. That's something we never, ever got. So I just think Todd, still one of my favorite characters, you know, a breath of fresh air in the show, in the show, absolutely a necessary character. I just now find looking at the It's You speech, I'm like, this doesn't have the same impact to me as I initially thought it did. You know, I just like imagined a parallel universe where the it's you speech occurs when Mr. Peanut Butter, like Bojack and Mr. Peanut Butter are on the game show together and he pulls up the chair just out of vision. <laughs> I think that would have been. Yes. I, <laughs> I, agree. I think Also, one more thing I realized that I changed my mind on while you were speaking. Mm -hmm. I now understand like where like watching it uh, when I'm older, I now understand why Mr. Peanut Butter and Diane were awful. And I'm like, oh God, I would have hated to date Mr. Peanut Butter. When I first watched it, I was like, oh, he's trying. What's wrong with him? But looking back, I'm like, oh, this man actually does not give a damn about a single thing she says. He is yeah. only interested in doing what he thinks is fun. Yeah, I, I fully agree. And I feel like there are so many interesting like parallels between Peanut Butter and Bojack in terms of like, you know, Bojack wants to be told what Bojack wants to be told he's good. Mr. Peanut Butter enjoys being good, but he doesn't enjoy like being right for people. He just enjoys doing the good thing. And like, which is why he literally compulsively proposes to Pickles. Like he has a compulsion to be good, no matter who it hurts. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And his view of good is never in context of like, what is good for the person? It is in context of what, like, I guess, like the societal view of like, what would be the correct decision in this scenario? Like, obviously, maybe you want to throw a big spectacle for your girlfriend's party. That's what we consider like a big sign of love and affection, right? Mm -hmm. um, but he can't like get past the idea that this sign, like this, what many would consider like a universal sign of affection is assigned to his girlfriend that he actually doesn't care about her own individual needs. Yeah, fully agree. Um, okay, so we've had so many characters who have come up on this. Which character design is the most adorable? The most adorable, oh gosh. We mentioned the baby seahorse, Ruthie. Those are super cute. Mm -hmm. um, that's such a good question. Mm -hmm. Oh gosh, I'll have to think about this one. Um, 
I think like the baby animals of Bojack are always super, super adorable. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Hollyhock's design is really cute. Uh-huh. Like I think she like whenever I see her, I just go. Oh. Um, I really like like Charlotte's design and Penny's design. Like Charlotte just gives me like a very like warm feeling. Like mm-hmm. she reminds me of like you know like that fun aunt from like New Mexico that brings you like beautiful jade stones and talks to you about the mountains and how she wants to take you skiing um let me think there's a there was there's one more that comes to mind but it was like a background character like that appeared very very briefly there's like um a sheep dog like what do you call the people that like park your car Oh, valets! Oh, and he's super eager. Yeah, yes, that I think is so cute. I just love her. Like whatever, or him. Whenever they pop up on screen, I'm like, this is one of the cutest things I've seen ever. (laughs) So, um, I would say my top three most adorable characters are Maud, um, uh, Baby Bojack, and Baby Beatrice. Um, The Baby Bojack's little eyelashes and the sailor suit, like. I so a, a fun fact about me uh, is that I've been a dance teacher for 16 years, and I used to never work with little kids. Like it's it's my side hustle, and podcasting is my other side hustle. I'm tired all the time, um, but I used to work with kids mainly like I'd say nine and up. And this year, I was told like, hey, I know you don't work with with the littles, but we really need someone to do these four different acro classes on Friday night. We've got five-year-olds, six-year-olds, seven-year-olds, and eight-year-olds. Like those are my four classes. And wow, I did not realize how much I love little kids who aren't just my nephews. Because I have two little nephews. They're great. I will always think they're the best humans on the planet. But I just didn't realize how like freaking funny kids are. And like still not enough to make me want them. But um, like the other night, one of them was shocked to learn that I have a mom. (laughs) for it's like how old do they think i am but it was one of my five-year-olds i was like this song is almost as old as my mom you have a mom um but and so like bojack really really baby bojack and baby beatrice it's the way that they add to their little cheeks and their how their hooves are so short that i'm just like this makes me go screaming nuts the way i do when i see a cute kid oh yeah (laughs) The seahorses, when we first saw that trio of seahorses, I was like, I understand. I understand. I would blow the Laffy Taffy factory, too. (laughs) (laughs) Their little bellies, like, ugh. All right. Whose voice performance do you think is the strongest? Voice performance is the strongest. Oh, I just love Princess Carolyn's Amy Sedaris. Oh, I love them. I also love the fact that she expressed like hatred for like all the alliteration jokes, like all the tongue twisters. <laughs> um, so on purpose, they gave her character the most out of any of the other ones. But I think like whenever I hear her voice, I just feel motivated. Like that, like sort of sharp, fast paced wit, um, like this like single minded focus. She reminds me, she speaks in the way, I don't know if this will make sense, but she speaks in the way that people in New York City walk. Like just like this <laughs> sort of like direct, like single-minded focus I know where I'm going I know what I'm going to do today even if I actually don't know I'm going to pretend like I do and I'm going to project this image to the world that I have everything together and I just I just love listening to her speak and like the moments where she's more vulnerable I think because that's usually the tone she gives off they're so much more impactful yeah I think her voice also really matches her design very well um I um 
So I normally try to give a different answer than my guesses, but I have Amy Sedaris as well. She already had a very iconic voice. And it's not like I listen and it's like, oh, I wouldn't know that was Amy Sedaris. But she really just, she does all the right things to make Princess Carolyn her own. Um, I also am very proud of this. And I just pulled it up. This is a near, this is a year and a half year old tweet for me, but I'm so proud of this because I basically wrote my own Princess Carolyn joke. And I said, I like I would crowdfund to get Amy Sedaris to say this via cameo. Uh, John Tortorella, coach of the Philadelphia Flyers, appeared at the waterfront in Toronto to tell people that he heard if they got the vaccine, they'd be able to see hockey games as well as basketball and soccer. Torts purports at the ports that if we get the vax passports, they will get you into sports of all sorts. That's I will crowdfund. I will crowdfund for Amy <laughs> Sedaris to say this as well. It's it's almost impossible to like for me now to read like wordplay and stuff like that. And it's just so much more fun in the Princess Carolyn voice. That's it. One of my favorite wordplay jokes in the entire series is not a Princess Carolyn one. It's um it's the newscaster and it's disaster El Dente off the coast of San Clemente with the giant uh, with giant pasta bowls. Yeah. So funny. That one just always sticks in my mind. Okay, so we've talked a little bit about cute design, but overall, which character design, again, central character, supporting char do character, do you like the most? Central character design. Central oh. or supporting. Central yeah. or supporting. Okay, let me think. Um, I really like Sarah Lynn's. Like, so much of her character design, like, foreshadows, like, her eventual fate. I didn't understand what her tattoo was for a very, very, very long time. The intertwining snakes. Mm. Um, and there's an official name for this term, but I believe that it's supposed to be like a staff of Hermes. Mm -hmm. So it re on one hand, it reminded me of like, like the symbol we see like in medicine, like the staff with like the two snakes intertwining. So I was like, mm -hmm. oh, maybe it's a symbol that she wants to heal, but it can also alternatively have like a much darker meaning. Like mm -hmm. it's symbolized like destruction or like self-destruction. Um, and also, like, the fact that, like, her shirts have skulls. She just has, like, very, like, I, the outfits that she steps into, like, the one that haunts me is the one she wears at the funeral and the one that she wears in the view from halfway down because they're, like, the hands. The hands, yes. Yeah. Awesome. Like, so, specifically the fact, oh, sorry. No. Specifically the fact that she wears that first shirt at Herb's funeral, like, the thing that introduces her to the entertainment industry. Mm. I just think that's very impactful. Mm -hmm. Um, my favorite uh, character design is from the supporting cast as well. I would say I really like Kelsey Jannings. I think she is a great portrayal of, because like they make so much of like, oh yeah, she's the indie darling everyone is trying to get behind right now. And I think she, like, they do faces very well on BoJack. They're very good at showing like weathered faces, like even, you know, to speak to Sarah Lynn's design, the way like they, the way they make her lose her cute look she's still beautiful but she has no cute look left with kelsey it's the flatness of her face which i know some people might say is just the um the animation style but to me that is the flatness of the face of someone who has completely lost their lust for for hollywood who is in this now literally because it means the difference between their kid going to a state school and not um i think like Cartoons are sometimes bad at depicting middle age and what middle age looks like. And I think Kelsey is a very good depiction of middle age. I also agree. I think the, do, the show does a phenomenal job of depicting middle age because I feel like a lot of shows are like, what do women after 40 look like? And they pull mm -hmm. up a woman that's like 60 years old. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I think like even with the animal designs, I think they do a good job of showing like middle age and the animal designs, which isn't that, which I think is kind of hard to do, but 
in the flashbacks we see mr like princess caroline her fur is much more fuller she's like she has like longer hair she doesn't have like the bags under her eyes mm. I, I think it's I think it's a pretty neat detail they managed to interweave aging an animal. Mm -hmm. All right, our tenth and final question: What is a moment from the show that has made you cry or come close? Because not everyone's a crier. No, man, no, there's several. This, this, <laughs> <laughs> you want the list? <laughs> um, let's see. Um, the the I'm a pit scene, like really, really. Oh, it just got me right here when I watched it for the first time um just something about like the way like Alison Brie's voice like cracks and trembles like just like the whale like that like, devastated mm -hmm. guttural whale like oh my god I'm my own worst monster mm -hmm. um that one makes me very sentimental um I think um good damage also makes me very sentimental like that moment where like Diane is able to find peace and healing beside Princess Caroline I think is very important and let's see there's one more the I, the born broken scene also makes me like very like like both like the conversation where his mother's having it with him oh wait changing answer it's the scene in season six where bojack is trying to recall the first time he drank mm -hmm. and you know we keep having flashbacks throughout the episode but it's the final flashback where we see him as like a child mm -hmm. and passed out drunk and he takes a sip of like the alcohol bottle. And it's even implied this isn't his first time. This is just the first time he can remember. Mm -hmm. So he feel like the warmth of his mother embracing him through the whiskey. And he lies next to her because that's the only time he knows he can passively receive some form of affection because she's too drunk to move away. And that just makes me so, so sad. Mm -hmm. So no surprises here. Uh, Sarah Lynn's death. Um, you know, like I said, I, I have a friend who she died in her sleep. And uh, fortunately not at a planetarium. Um, and it was just a big thing of like, I, I watched that when the wound was very fresh and I had no idea it was coming, but it was also, even when I go back and now that that wound has, I'll say scabbed over, um, it still is such a sad thing to me and everything leading up to that, you know, her say, and the fact that she said, like, I want to go to the planetarium and we've heard Sarah Lynn say in the past that she wants to be an architect. And I think there's something about like, you know, chasing your dreams from childhood and wanting to reconnect with your childhood. Like just before this podcast start, it started, I was texting in front of the show, Mike Stevens. And I said, the movie Toy Story makes me cry, not because there's any sad scenes, but because it reminds me of childhood. And I realize when I watch it that I miss my childhood. And um, so I think like, Everything about Sarah Lynn, the fact that she was chase, constantly chasing something, um, I think is, it's just, it's legitimately difficult for me because yes, I see my friend who's passing Sarah Lynn, I see myself in Sarah Lynn. And um, because again, I work with children and I work with teenagers and I work with teenagers who are in a very cutthroat competitive dance environment. And so it makes me feel protect, reflexively very protective of them. So anything with Sarah Lynn is difficult for me. All right, so now we have reached the peak. This is after all peak show. So peaks mean different things for different people. Some people it's the quality peak, some it's when could this have ended, some it's when was this show the most like itself. So for you, with, with all that looseness in mind, what is peak Bojack for you? When does, when does Bojack peak for you? When does Bojack peak for me? Oh gosh. There's like two moments, two big peaks for me, and they both occur like in the final episodes. 
in season four, one of like the peak moments for me, like the moment that gave me the most hope was when Bojack and Hollyhock have their final conversation and Hollyhock like extends like this olive branch, like I've never had a brother. And like we see like, I, for me, it just like looked, looked like a world of potential. It, for everybody, it gave them the hope, oh, is this the moment that he finally goes on the up and up? And then we have the season five finale where there's that huge like Bojack balloon just looming over him after he hits what I personally consider like truly, truly, truly rock bottom mm-hmm. um, to like show that he's the one that's haunting himself. He's haunting himself while he's still alive. Um, and I just, I think those two moments like in comparison to the other are like some of the most important impactful moments of the show for me. Mm-hmm. So I also have actually that last conversation between Bojack and Hollyhock at the end of season four as a peak moment for me. And for me, that is because it's not so much even a quality peak, but it's certainly a hopefulness peak. And I would say that if the show had ended there, it would have been fine. It would have been an extremely different show tonally because it would have showed the idea that all closure is positive and um, that, you know, a good thing can erase the bad things because there were still bad threads dangling. There. Sarah Lynn's thread was still technically dangling. Um, You know, Penny's thread was still dangling. But um, yeah, I would say that that is a peak of the show also in the sense of the mood of the show because you you leave season four thinking maybe things will be all right for good Bojack and the next two seasons are so incredibly hard to get through. They are a slog. They are something you watch because you want to see how it ends, not because you're loving it. I mean, I do love it. But it's it's different than something you're watching because it gives you the good feeling. So, um, again, this could re- apply to quality or mood or tonality. How big is the gap between the best of the show and the worst of the show for you? Okay, let's see. Personally, like for me, the worst of the show is when the show is still finding its feet. Mm-hmm. So, say I know we mentioned this before, but the first half of season one I think is so weak in context of like the rest of the show. It's not necessarily bad, but and I understand you need setup, but I think even so that it's still very, very weak. They're not really sure where they want to go with these characters or what, like this particular like plot thread of Bojack attempting to reclaim lost fame. So I'd say, I'd say a medium sized or maybe a narrow gap. Yeah, because I don't think I'm like oh they're unwatchable. I think they're fun. They're funny. Mm-hmm. I love the Neil McBeal the Navy Seal episode. I still watch it sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just think in comparison to like the masterpiece I consider the rest of the show to be, I just don't think they hold up as well. What about yeah. you? Definitely like the first half of season one. I would say like for me, it's the Bojack ceiling, the Hollywood D, although that does, I do love how much they commit to that bit and it Hollywood just becomes an unquestioned place. But I would say like, that's an example of they were trying so hard to make the overarching thing about this love triangle between three characters that like none of them are particularly likable. And um, when they decide to move away from that, I was very relieved. But I would say, like, if the best of BoJack, which I do consider to be, like, seasons four and five, if the best of BoJack is an A+, plus, then the worst of BoJack is, like, a B- minus at that, if that. So that's kind of how I would grade. And so if you were going to recommend the show to a friend, what preamble, instructions, or warnings, or anything about how to watch it, when to watch it, what kind of preamble do you give them? I usually say buckle in here for a wild ride. Mm-hmm. I I would say my biggest piece of advice that I would give people is take breaks with BoJack. 
um, take breaks because even when you think you're having fun, it's going to get heavy. I would also say that even though I, I know I just said it feels like you can stop after season four, don't because one of the ultimate lessons about BoJack is like not all closure is good closure. And I think it the ending of BoJack and how melancholy it is is so necessary. Of course. I think I think thematically BoJack has probably one of the best endings I've ever seen in a TV show. Mm-hmm. Like it's not totally it's like it's not like there's no hope left, but it's simply like these are the consequences that your actions have led you have, mm-hmm. have given you. And you mm-hmm. have to deal with them. And there's very little that you can do to ramify them. But all you can do is to try and strive to be better. And mm-hmm. that's what makes life worth living. The fact that you should should and can still continue to try. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, as we wrap it up, Loretta, a.k.a. Lucky Lefty, tell our viewers, our viewers, our listeners, where they can uh, see your content, your videos, where they can follow you online. Of course. You can find me on TikTok at Lucky Lefty and on YouTube at the similar name. YouTube has not launched it, but when it does, we will be doing long form essay content, hopefully 30 minutes to an hour each. I'm so excited about that. As for me, I've been your host, Bree Rohde. You can follow me on Twitter at prune underscore underscore Tracy or follow this podcast on Twitter at Peak Show Pod. New episodes come out every second Thursday. And next week, we are talking This Is Us with uh, the AV Club's Caroline Side. So excited about that. It is one of my favorite shows. And it is, I guess, officially the first non-comedy we're ever doing on Peak Show. If you want more Peak Show, we've got two seasons full of back catalogs. And we've got so much more than just TV. We've got stuff on music. We've got stuff on the Saw movies for some reason, because I was in that kind of mood that day. We've got stuff about Star Wars, The Simpsons. And this season, we are going all out. We're talking Steven Spielberg. We're talking The Beatles. We're talking The X-Files in a couple weeks, if you're if you thought we didn't talk enough about being bisexual in this episode don't worry the x-files is coming thank you very much i've been your host brie Rody, and remember times that i never stand still nor moves backward only forward thank you